So, Claire, what's your earliest money memory? Aged about three or four, eavesdropping on the stairs, looking through the banisters, watching my mum and dad manage their money around the kitchen table at night. You know, all the statements, putting cash in envelopes, knowing that they were so diligently working to budget so that we wouldn't run out of money was something I found really comforting. How about you? Uh, I saved up week by week for a, a doll called a Sasha doll, which is now worth a huge amount of money. And you still have the doll? I still have the doll. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Isabel Berwick, host of Working It, the FT's Work and Careers podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, Isabel's colleague and host of the FT's personal finance show, Money Clinic. And this week, a double billing. Working It and Money Clinic have joined forces. And it's all because of your newly published book, Claire, called What They Don't Teach You About Money. Yes, my first book. You may have heard about it on the show. And this is a recording of a webinar that we did to mark the event organised by the FT's financial literacy charity, Blick. So in the webinar, we delved into the ways that your financial personality, as you call it, can affect the ways you handle money. Yes, and importantly, how you can change that and shift your money mindset. And we had loads of questions from webinar viewers on everything from how to handle debts to what financial advice young people should be getting. So let's dive straight into the recording. A question of you are put to you, Claire. Why did you write your book? Well, I think the reason I wanted to write this book is because I feel that a lot of us have got emotional barriers, which we might acknowledge, we might not acknowledge, that are preventing us from getting to grips with our money. Now, anxiety um, is the biggest one, especially at the moment. And I'm really, really glad to see that people who tell me that they feel anxious about their money have tuned in today. So, you know, keep watching. Um, we're going we're gonna to tackle lots of these issues. But also the fact that we have to manage our money with other people, with other family members, with our partners, with our children, um, who we need to teach good money habits to as well. So there's a lot of emotional um, constructs that exist around money. I've come up with the concept of a, f- a financial personality in the book to help us think a little bit more objectively about our good and our bad habits um, when it comes to managing money. I'm sure we'll mention a few of them uh, later on. It's possible for your financial personality to change. And the biggest way I think that you can affect change is by educating yourself, which is what we're all here to do, but also by talking about money um, more with those closest to you. So wonderful to break down those taboos and start lots of money conversations. Yes, because a big part of your book is encouraging honesty and openness. And we've both talked about our biggest money mistakes. And yours is brilliant. Can you tell the viewers what that was? (laughs) Okay, well, I mean, the serious one, my biggest money mistake was not starting a a pension until I was 30. Uh, We'll talk more about pensions later because there is free money on the table from your employer. And I've done a whole chapter um, on that in the book. But one of my earliest money mistakes was taking my eye off the ball when it came to a store card from a certain Swedish furniture retailer. And I tell the story, I, I, I broke up with a boyfriend. He took half the furniture with him went down to um, the shop and it said like you can get 20% off um, today if you sign up for our store card and and buy furniture so so I did but I didn't look at the repayments I got defaulted onto the minimum repayment and like about four or five years later I thought why am I still paying for these things which included a coffee table not unlike the one in front of us um, and and I particularly like this coffee table because I used to come home from from the pub as a, as a single woman um, and lie on the floor and hold on to the legs of the coffee table in a futile attempt to stop the room from 
spinning around. Do you remember like when we were younger, oh, yes. if you get really pissed, then like the room would spin around. And so my my lodger at the time would often come home and find me like lying on the floor fast asleep. Um, so I ended up overpaying about £200, I think, for this coffee table, more than I should have done because of all of those interest payments getting charged on that card. And when I woke up to this, I was so angry with myself um, and I sort of resolved. It was a bit of an epiphany moment. I thought I need to take much more um, careful attention to what's going on. It could have been a lot worse, frankly. I didn't build up bigger debts. It's, it's very easy for people to do nowadays. But the moral of the story is 20 years later, I still have the same coffee table, although I don't hold on to the legs as much anymore. So it was worth it in the end. So keeping on that sort of credit theme, we've already got some questions from viewers about credit cards. Mm. What would you recommend regarding your first credit card, which I'm going to take as taking one out or choosing or getting one in the sure. first place? This is a really common question that listeners of Money Clinic podcast ask us a lot. And one of my favourite Instagrammers, Debt Camel, follow her if you don't already, um, was a guest on a, a recent episode. And there's a lot of pressure on young people to get a credit card because they know that to have a good credit score, which is going to unlock things like mortgages and other financial products, even phone contracts um, to you later in life, having a credit card um, can be a good idea because you're building up a history of being able to borrow money and pay it back, borrow money and pay it back. That's the crucial thing, the paying it back. Now, if you are going to open um, a, a credit card, there are lots of different ones that younger people with less of a credit history can open, but they tend to have higher interest rates, like 25%, 30%, even higher, not uncommon. They're called credit builder cards. So if you're buying one thing a month on it, paying it back in full when the bill comes in, maybe even set up a direct debit to pay the amount off in full, that's a good habit to get into. But as Sarah, the debt camel says, you know, you only really need to get into credit cards a couple of years, maybe before you're applying for a mortgage. There's no rush. It's not something that you have to do. Although obviously there are advantages when you're buying, you get more protection. It's easier to pay for things like hotels and hire cars if they want to do a swipe. But you must treat that responsibly. And when you take a debt on, be thinking from that moment, how am I going to pay it back? Yeah, so that's an interesting point. So you take the credit card out, make sure you can pay it back. Don't get out of your depth. What's your advice to people who've already got out of their depth? Yeah. a credit card and a carrying a balance. It's really interesting that I've done quite a few book events and sometimes people queue up after us to talk to me, which is a, a lovely, a lovely, lovely thing. Often someone will hang back at the back and I always know that they want to talk to me about debt when everyone else has gone because there is this yeah. huge sense of shame. Now, shame shields solutions is the mantra of Tiffany Anice, the budget niece. She's one of the people who I quote in the book. She is a US blogger. She's got a Netflix show um, and she has paid off huge amounts of personal debt in her time. So she's become a financial expert basically through her own life experience, which makes her the budget niece, if you want to follow her, a really, really powerful um, person. And she says, you know, you've, you've got to ask for help um, if you're in problem debt. Debt call centres, typically, the kind of calls that they're getting from people, they've been struggling with problem debt for more than a year, two, two years sometimes. And during that time, um, problem debts can spiral. What starts off as a small problem or a small debt can often um, get worse, particularly if you have a sudden change to your life circumstances, like maybe you're made redundant or um, you get ill and you can't work, you're self-employed. The pandemic obviously has caused um, lots of issues. So, you know, talk 
um, communicate, get advice. Those free debt charities, that's what they're there for. They do online appointments. It's much better to speak to an independent person at a charity than do what most people do, which is go online and try and sort the problem out themselves. We have this feeling of like, well, I got myself into this mess, so I'm going to get myself out of it. There are a lot of predatory companies online that will try and sell you a debt solution, but they're not independent and they're thinking about their profits and their bottom line and not whether something's good for you. If you take one of these, they're called IVAs, um, you could end up in a worse position um, than you than you started off in. So if the debt advice is free, confidential and available, um, which it is, then always take that option. And as I said before, do follow Debt Camel. She's a registered debt advisor and she does a brilliant job on Instagram of just making it more normal to talk about living with debt, which most of us are, let's face it, especially during the cost of living crisis. But we mustn't let it ruin our lives. We must educate ourselves and empower ourselves to get into a better place. Yeah. And and when it comes to goals, how do you set them? Um, I mean, we've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, setting intentions and things like that. Yeah. Do you write them down or is it in your head? What would you advise? I do write things down. Um, I tried manifesting yeah. um, at the beginning of this year because <laughs> Mr. Money Jar, another person who I, who I follow on Instagram, he said, like, there is something in it yeah. like saying, you know, I want to write a best-selling book or um, I want to start my own podcast or a side hustle. Uh, just sort of, if you say it to yourself enough times, I can do it. I can do it because all too often, I mean, you know, with the Working It podcast, there's a lot of imposter sy- syndrome and yeah. lack of self-belief, especially if we're trying to um, do something different in our lives, change our relationship with with money. So I think that tracking things is really important. Um, I've always had a financial to-do list. Um, I've always, um, I mean, I found it quite difficult to manage my money when I was in my early 20s. You've already heard the story about how I took my eye off the ball with the credit card repayments. So you need to be really organised. You need to have a system for filing your um, either physical paperwork or digital paperwork so you can find things, you know what's coming up. I like to sit down in Twixtmas, that bit between yeah. December and January, and think, well, what are the big sort of points of um, expenditure that we're going to have over the year? You know, what home improvements are we going to try and do? What holidays are we um, going to budget for? How much do I need to be saving up a month um, to go into those different pots? Because I like to use internet banking where you set up different goals and automate um, direct debits on payday to, you know, automate um, automatically fill them up so you don't need to think about things um, more than once. Um, and I like to have nice stationery. It's a really small thing. I got a lovely message from somebody on Instagram who said, I heard you talking about the importance of having nice stationery if you're anxious about dealing with your money on a podcast. And I felt really affirmed by the fact that you, um, as, as an expert, um, said that something so silly almost um, could make a difference. I had a Hello Kitty folder. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, which I confessed to um, on a new money podcast that came out this week uh, called Making Money. And it just made me feel differently about money. You know, I I was sort of saying this is something friendly um, and I'm not going to be intimidated by it. And the feeling I'm going to hold on to is the feeling when I shut the Hello Kitty folder, having dealt with all of the things um, or some of the things on my financial to-do list, that feeling of like, I'm getting on top of this. I'm taking smaller steps towards becoming a better financial me. You know, I'm paying off the credit cards. um, I'm looking at what's coming up. I'm saving money. I found out about my company pension scheme. All of these things. I suggest lots of ways in the book that people could, you know, just take those, put them on their financial to-do list and get go. But just try and do one thing with your money if you can, every week. 
Um, don't feel like you've got to sort it all out in one go because that's just totally overwhelming. Just be realistic and say, okay, this week I'm going to look at that. Next week I might have a look at what credit card I could apply for. Don't try and do it all at once. Similar principle to decluttering, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just do one thing at a time and focus oh, on that. I'm always decluttering. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you are. So someone's asked, what factors should I consider when deciding how much to keep in cash for an emergency fund? For example... I aim for six months fixed outgoings, but with no real rationale. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those figures that financial advisors kind of pluck out of the air and say, you need to have um, six months. I think a lot of it depends on your individual circumstances. Like if you're a freelancer, for example, um, I think you definitely need um, to, to have more of a financial cushion because your earnings are going to fluctuate. That's just a fact of life. Mm. People paying you late, um, you know, is a huge problem um, that subsequent governments have just never really properly um, addressed, something that I write about with my small business hat on. Um, but if you're in a regular paid job and you know that if you do get made redundant, you're going to get a redundancy payoff, um, then maybe you don't need quite so much. But I think looking at the overall um, proportion of, of, of cash that you need is, is a really good idea because obviously we've got emergency fund money. If you own your own house, then you're going to need to have home maintenance money because, you know, things will and do go on. If you don't keep spending on maintenance, then you're you're storing up problems for the, for the future. You're going to have, um, you know, a real, a real emergency on your hands. Um, and then you've got like things like traveling um investing in your um and you know ongoing training and and, and development as as we've said um maybe you're saving up towards um having a baby paying for childcare. the obvious one is house deposits i think we've had a, a separate question on that so you don't want to be investing money that you might need back um in a couple of years time because if stock markets fall and you can't leave your money in there so gradually reinflate um, as they get better over time, um, then you're, you're going to be taking your money out and crystallising that that loss. So it does take a bit of time working out, um, as I said, with your partner or, you know, even a, a like-minded friend who might have a similar kind of shaped budget to you, how much cash, what your goals are, what you're working towards. So I'm going to move on to some stuff about the internet, which I think is, is huge. I mean, you're mm. a very expert user of social media. There's a lot of finance on TikTok and Instagram. How do we know, you know, who to listen to? A lot of these are untested schemes or crypto investments. Yeah, I mean, the answer is we don't know. But let me say some positives um, about TikTok, Instagram and social media. YouTube is a huge platform for for personal finance um, information. We can now go and educate ourselves online in a way that I could not when I was growing up. So we did a podcast recently saying, who did you learn the most about finance from, your mum or your dad? And actually, all of the young people answering my my poll on social media were saying, uh, the internet, internet, why isn't the internet an option? And, and, you know, this is why I love being on social media, because you learn. Um, it, you're not just there to to, to teach, I'm, I'm there to learn and, and, and to absorb as well. So... I think one of the problems that doesn't get talked about very much is that some of the most high profile people on TikTok, especially, are American. And if you're watching things in the UK, there are certain things that cross the transatlantic border, like, you know, investing regularly, um, you know, little and often small amounts, compound interest, the miracle of how 
um, these in investments into index funds, in particularly where you're buying a slice of the whole market. It's cheap and your money can grow um, quite substantially over time if you take a long-term view. Things like FIRE, financial independence, retire early. That's a very US concept, but lots of people in the UK are, are very faithful um, followers of that. So all of those things are fine. But then a lot of the terminology um, in America, like, you know, general investment accounts. Yes, you know, you can open a, a, an investment account in America with, with a stockbroker. But if you open a general investment account over here, um, it's probably not the right thing to do because we have something the Americans don't, the ISA system, um, stocks and shares ISAs, which means that if your investments grow um, within it, they're protected from all different kinds of tax, whether that's capital gains tax, um, if they're growing in value, um, dividend tax, income tax when you take money out. So it really, really pays to... Um, and, and student loans um, is the other one. The US student loan system, the UK student loan system, completely different. Lots of people want to overpay their UK student loan debt. Again, we made a podcast on Money Clinic about that. Not a good idea, but in the US, um, in some circumstances, obviously it can be. But there, there, are some, there are some things that don't translate. The biggest, biggest thing to watch out for, red flag alert on social media, anyone asking you for money, anyone telling you to invest in a particular thing, especially if it's cryptocurrency, because I get people who clone my account on Instagram, they copy all of my posts, they add like a one to my handle, at Claire B1 or at Claire B underscore. Um, so it looks like it's me. And then they'll message you um, knowing that you're one of my followers and just say something really innocuous, like, hi, how are you doing? And you think, oh, Claire's messaging me. Oh, hi, Claire, how are you? Nice to hear from you. And I say, do you want to make some extra money on the side? Or um, I've got a great side hustle idea. You can imagine where it goes. It's basically a request for money um, saying buy um, some unregulated uh, crypto, or it may not even be crypto at the end of it. They're saying it's crypto, but you transfer money to them and then bang, the money's gone and your bank will say, well, you didn't take enough care and attention, so, so we're not refunding you. And this kind of stuff happens again and again and again. Martin Lewis, the patron saint of personal finance in the UK, he was talking about it on Wednesday on ITV, how people are um, copying him. So you never really know who anyone is um, online. No, I think that's a great point. Actually, something we learn in journalism, isn't it? Don't be afraid to ask the stupid question. Mm. Because people, there is an element of shame of not knowing in the first place, but there, there really shouldn't be. And like we've sort of moved on to investing and I wanted to talk a little bit. You've mentioned the magic of ISAs. Oh, yes. So we've got some questions about, you know, starting an ISA. Where, mm. where do you start with that? Okay, so you can start doing a regular investment into a stocks and shares ISA from £25 a month on the big platforms. They don't need any more publicity, so I won't name them all. But then there are also smaller platforms, app-based ones, um, where you can start from as little as a pound. Now, the fees are marginally higher um, on these ones where you can invest very, very small sums and put them into to an ISA. But as a way of getting started, dipping your toe in the water, um, I think, you know, absolutely fine. There are lots of um, apps that don't offer direct investment, but will offer you kind of like coaching in money. They'll run different courses. They'll, um, you know, you're paying a small subscription and they're doing lessons about um, in the basics of investing. Now, there's lots and lots in my book as well about the basics yeah. of investing, but couple of things to mention. Be diversified, you know, don't put all of your um, money in 
in, in one particular thing. Index funds are the way that lots of people do that, where you're buying a slice of the market. There's a lot about index funds um, in my book. One of the most downloaded Money Clinic podcast episodes this year is an interview I did with two other authors, um, Jonathan Hollow and Robin Powell. Um, they've written a book all about index fund investing. That episode is called What's the Cheapest Way to Invest, which is why it's popular um, with so many people. So I would suggest that you have a listen to that. And then you've got to be confident that you're prepared to take a loss on this money. Now, so far this year, my own um, stocks and shares ISA hasn't made any money for me. It's lost some money. But because I'm looking at the long-term picture, I'm thinking I'm 46 now. I don't mind admitting to you. My son put the birthday candles on my cake the other way around. So it said 64. <laughs> I could have killed him. Um, I'm not intending to withdraw any of the money in my stocks and shares ISA until I am at least 60 years old. I've got cash savings as well that I can draw on in the meantime. If I have an emergency, I've got money that I'm building up for short-term um, expenditure. So when I look at the balance and it's gone down a bit, I don't panic and want to take the money out, which is the number one mistake that new investors make. Oh, I've lost money. Um, I'm going to take it out. And unfortunately, the double-edged sword of the apps is like, yes, it's easy to get started. You can set it up in the back of a taxi kind of thing. But you can also look at it all the time and fiddle. And fiddling is not good um, for, for investing. Having a long-term plan and sticking to it um, is, is, is definitely the way to go. But it does take nerves and it does really help me to think I'm not going to need that money until I'm 60, uh, so I'm going to leave it alone. And we've got masses of questions about investing, but uh, there's one here, you know, should you think about paying down your mortgage rather than taking out an ISA? Yeah, lots of people are looking at this at the moment. Mortgage interest rates um, are hovering around the 5% mark if you wanted to do um, 4 to 5% if you wanted to do a new five-year deal um, today. They could fall in the future. They could rise. We don't know. If you've got a very large mortgage, then obviously people are thinking, well, that's a guaranteed return on debt if I'm paying that off. Um, it means that when I remortgage in the future, I'll have less debt, so I might be able to get a better rate. Um, it's you know, it's 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 a very personal decision yeah. again um, in terms of what you want to do. It's the alternative is um, if you're investing in the stock market over time, looking for a long return. If we are going to be living with higher inflation for longer then the value of your debts will be deflated away um, and you would hope that the value of your investments might have a better chance of, of outperforming inflation. So lots of things to talk to um, whoever you own your house with um, about. But um, the other thing that people overlook, which they often did in the pandemic, because there was all of this talk of investing apps and trading in crypto, so it's like, I want to be an investor, I want to be an investor. But actually, anyone who works for a company already is an investor through their company pension. And that's something that I talk about a lot in the book. Your first port of call should always be, if I pay more into my company pension, will my employer also pay in more? It's called matched contributions. And if anyone's got a job interview coming up, it's a brilliant question to ask at the end of the, of the job interview. What's the level of match on your staff pension scheme? But at the bare minimum, um, it, you're looking at, uh, you know, you're, you're paying in 3% of your salary, I think, with also enrolment. Your employer has to um, pay in about the same. And then you're also getting the benefit of paying less tax because money that you pay into a pension, you don't pay tax on. It can grow tax free until you retire. And then when you take money out of your pension, yes, you will pay some tax, um, but you will also get a quarter of it, your tax free lump sum. 
free of tax. So it's a very tax efficient way of putting money aside for the future. That's the incentive um, from the government, from employers for us to do that. But unless we understand it, um, we may not be making the most of it. So it's sort of magic, but many people are not too aware of what's going on. No, when you when you describe pensions as free money, um, which I talk about in the book, people get more interested because pensions, you think pensioner, years away, tomorrow's problem, especially right now. People are saying, well, can I stop my pension contributions because I could do with an extra 50 yeah. quid in my pay packet. Well, if you understand that you're actually going to get a pay cut, it's not the 50 quid that you're losing. It's also the extra cash from your employer, which could be, as I said, you know, quite a substantial sum, then you can make a more informed decision. And if you do need to cut it, if that's the only lever you can pull, then try to resolve to start paying in again as soon as you can. But I think there's a big piece here about mental health. You know, should mm. you stick in a terrible job because of the money? Yeah. That's well, a question a lot of people ask, I think. They get worried about leaving, but they're actually being made sick by their job. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people feel that they have no choice, um, you know, especially if you're the breadwinner. I mean, people talk about lifestyle creep and about how when you start to earn more, all of these things get added on um, to, the, to the list of expectations. And certainly... It's quite hard for um, couples especially to say, well, if you did leave your job and if you did retrain to be something else, then these are all the things that we would, would have to go without. Um, it's, it's, a really, it's a really tough um, situation to, to be in, but certainly burnout, corporate burnout, um, it's a big topic for the FT. And whenever we write about it, I always spend longer um, looking at the reader comments on our articles often than reading the articles themselves because seeing how people react to this, you know, it reminds you this is a real thing. This is a real thing. And money worries and the link between um, mental health and, and money problems is something that everyone has become more aware of, largely because of um, the the pandemic. I think that, you know, that made it acceptable to to say, actually, I've got I've got money problems and like, it's not me. <laughs> Look at what's happening in the wider world. And, you know, do do talk to people. Don't bottle things up. Um, if you're worried about your job, worried about money, any of these things, they do say a, a problem shared is, is a problem halved. And I do think that there is a lot of truth in that. Definitely. I think a lot of employers are starting to offer money advice to staff now. They are. People watching might not know that and it might be on offer. Yes, it is on offer um, in, in many bigger workplaces, especially. And and if it isn't, you know, money coaching, um, it gets a bit of a bad rep sometimes because money coaching, it's one of those catch-all terms. You know, you don't technically need to be qualified, although some people are. Um, but firms are offering it because they can see, there's a firm of accountants I know quite well because I um, often speak to them about um, FT money articles. Um, they could see that their female partners in particular were so frazzled um, and so busy trying to juggle all the different elements of life that actually their personal finances were, um, were, were being neglected. And it wasn't that they didn't know what to do. They just kind of like needed a bit of help to get themselves organised and actually put some of the plans in place for themselves um, that they were that they were doing for their clients. And I found that extraordinary in a way, because like, if you're an accountant, you think that you would look after yourself first and others next. But you and I know that's 
often not the way. No, when I was a personal finance journalist, my credit score was absolutely appalling. So well, I totally get that. Well, let, let's quickly squeeze in your biggest money mistake. Because <laughs> I, I think it's really important to admit yeah. your mistakes. My well. biggest money mistake was when I was a personal finance journalist. In fact, I think I was the personal finance editor of a national newspaper at the time. And I had a fling with someone that lasted about six weeks. And not only did I go overdrawn, I busted my overdraft limit. Uh, we flew around London in taxis. We ate in restaurants all the time. It was a devil may care time. And it took me years and years to pay it off. Wow. But you've still got the memories. Got them. <laughs> Let's hope he's not watching. Right. So loads of questions about couples, families. Okay. I, this one has touched me. How do you handle when your partner's spiralling into debt and he, she is not ready for a debt advice or counselling? Even if you're assisting paying off the debts, you have no clue about what's happening. Mm. I mean, that is a really, really hard situation. I mean, you've got to work together as a couple on your finances. I think often, um, you know, when, when people get together, they don't realise that the other one has debt problems. Exactly the situation that, that you mentioned is about, oh, you know, let's do this, let's do that. You know, you're in the first throes of romance. Let's go on holiday together. We'll, you know, we'll use the credit card. Um, sometimes there's an expectation that people, it doesn't have to be the woman, it could be the man, you know, it needs to be um, treated um, and that one person must pay for everything and, you know, gifts, jewellery, flowers, you know, the expectations around uh, things like Valentine's Day. Um, you know, this this requires a lot of financial keepy-uppy. Um, and then to find out actually that your partner's in debt because of all of this um, it can be a big shock. I mean, some gold digger types might, you know, dump and, and move on. But it sounds like the person who's answered this, uh, who's asked this question is in a, in a serious, committed long-term relationship. But ultimately, you are one half of this relationship. Your partner's debt problems, whilst they impact on you as a couple, are their debt problems and you can help them um, to solve them, but you, you can't solve them yourself. You know, that has to come from within them. It's the same for all kinds of other addictions because I think, you know, spending can be an addiction. Yes, overspender like is anonymous, debt is anonymous. I mean, these are help, really helpful organisations, but I guess the partner has to admit that they're powerless. You know, that's yeah. the step one. They've got to own the yeah. debt and say, you know what, I got myself into this situation and this is how it's happened. So we're going to, quite a lot of questions about children, oh, okay. which we haven't got to. What would be your top tips for teaching financial knowledge to children? Should it be on the school curriculum? Yes. What about the fact we don't use cash anymore? Yeah. How do we, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, you're involved with the Financial Times Flick campaign, financial literacy and inclusion. Can you tell us a yes. little bit about how that fits in? Yeah, absolutely. So number one, FT and um, Flick, which is an FT-backed charity, we absolutely think that personal finance should be on the school curriculum in a big way. Um, and we're lobbying more for that, both within maths, um, but also within English, within PHSE um, sessions. And we're making lots of material that teachers can use because the biggest problem is teachers don't feel qualified um, to teach about personal finance. Um, so by giving them the best materials, um, Amy, the director of the charity, calls it a bento box. You know, you can pick pick the, the resources you want. Um, and also the FT Flick website, there's lots of free articles, sources of information, videos, because of course videos um, can do a much better job of teaching people than necessarily written um, materials can. So when it comes to teaching kids about money, yes, um, 
the physicality of, of money is hard to replicate. Mm. They know that you're paying for things when you tap a car. You see babies see going like this now, don't you? Well, when I take my four-year-old niece anywhere on the tube, she says to me, credit card, Auntie Claire, because she wants to be the one who taps um, to, to get out and in um, on the underground because it makes her feel, you know, a million dollars. So, you know, I, I, I give it to her and let her tap it and then she'll walk off it. I'll be like, Estelle, come back. <laughs> give Auntie Claire her card. But nevertheless, um, you know, they know that it's a transaction, but they don't see the value. Now, when they start to get a bit older, the thing that taught me the most about money as a young person was working. Um, I had a Saturday job when I was 15. Um, I worked in the local music shop and at the end of the day, I got 20 quid out of the till. And that meant, OK, I've got 20 quid, I can go and spend it, I can blow it all in one go um, in the pub across the road after I don't tell anyone, uh, after <laughs> underage drinking, after I finish work, but it's gone and I'm not going to get any more. And I think that with the demise of things like like paper rounds mm -hmm. um, and, and Saturday jobs because they're all hot housing our kids towards um, passing their exams. This is unfortunately part of learning about money um, that everyone is missing out on. So you need lots of things. You know, you need information in school. You need better numeracy, being more confident with maths and the national numeracy campaign, um, which Flick works with a lot. It's doing a great job um, on that. But, you know, every time you get an opportunity to give your child a little ad hoc maths lesson, um, you know, like you're paying for um, the bill somewhere, challenge them to do the maths or say, like, if we were to split this between us, what would it cost? Um, what would it cost each? Show them your bills if they're a bit older. If they want to get a mobile phone, say, OK, go and do a costing. You know, like, what, what would it, what, what, what's the best way of doing it? Buying a handset, um, getting a contract... Even telling them, you know, could we get a better deal um, for this particular bill if we if we switched online or something that we buy regularly if we bought it in bulk? Could we save money? There are lots and lots of ways that you can get them thinking about it without sort of making them money mad, which I think a lot of parents are also worried about. Um, and the cost of living crisis, getting them too worried because they see on the news all the time, you know, inflation um, is, is spiralling, you know, pay isn't going up at the same rate, mortgages. Uh, so there's lots of things for young people to be worried about and fearful when it comes to money. But we, we, we need to kind of share information with them to sort of desensitise them a bit, but not too much to um, make them feel insecure. There's quite a lot they can teach us. I mean, they've led the way in things like Depop, Vinted, yes. you know, selling stuff online. That's a fantastic You know, that's suggestion. something that older yeah. people can learn about. I want this for my hobby. Well, OK, well, you've got to sell the roller skates first. Yeah, yeah. I think that's been a, a huge uh, thing. We've got time for one final thing, Claire. Is there a point we haven't made that you wanted to tell the viewers? Oh, that's that's a very good one. I mean, there, there was a question from a university professor um, that I saw on the list earlier on about like what's the the single most important thing that I should teach, um, you know, really young people, teenagers, yeah. um, often about personal finance. And I'm going to throw it back to you a bit because I think it's thinking about careers now, thinking about careers and how you're going to earn money for the rest of your life. That's something that that teenagers before they go to university really in this day and age really need to think carefully about. I took two years out and I worked full time before I went to university. It wasn't, um, a, you know, some brilliant world dominating plan. I was trying to get in a band and get a record deal. So I didn't want to go um, straight away. It could have been very lucrative. It could have been so different. <laughs> but it did give me time to think about what I actually wanted to, to do, you know, how I was going to earn my living. And nowadays, with the cost of student debt 
um, the extra costs that you'll rack up if you start one course and then switch horses and um, move to another one. It's really, really important. So if we've got any people who are teenagers watching, then I would say, like, talk to as many people as possible um, about their job, what they like about it, what they don't like about it. Obviously, you know, you've got um, links within your your family, your, your parents, friends, if you can be bothered to, to talk to them. But like, even on LinkedIn, like people often send me messages as a journalist on, on, on LinkedIn, um, and ask me what a career in, in journalism is like. If I've got time, um, I, I will reply to them. But often, if you're trying to get into a particular career or pivot as an older person, yeah. it's amazing if you reach out to people who who you follow. Um, they are willing to to give you a bit of, of, of time and, and advice and the benefit of their experience. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a brilliant point. People are kind generally, if as long as you don't ask too much of them. Yes. So I think we've asked a lot of you, Claire, today. This <laughs> has been fantastic. Thank you so much to Claire. Her book is What They Don't Teach You About Money, available in paperback from all good online and in real life bookstores. And Claire, thank you so much. It's been great. Just to re- reiterate, Claire's Money Clinic podcast is out weekly. My Working It podcast is out weekly. If you want that career advice. And it's been wonderful. And thank you so much for joining us. Our thanks to FT Live and to Flick, the FT's charity promoting financial literacy and inclusion, for organising that webinar on what they don't teach you about money. We're always looking to chat with people about their money issues for The Money Clinic Show. So if you're interested in being part of a future episode and want some expert money advice, then email us our address money at ft.com. You could also take a peek at our website, ft.com slash money, grab a copy of the FT Weekend newspaper, or follow me on Instagram. I'm at Claire B. Or get in touch with Working It. We're at workingit at ft.com, or I'm Isabel Berwick on LinkedIn. And if you're an FT subscriber, please sign up for our Working It newsletters. We've got the best workplace and management stories from across the FT. Sign up at ft.com slash newsletters. And finally, Money Clinic's usual disclaimer, today's podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor, but conveniently, that was also the topic of last week's episode. That's all the small print for now. See you back here next week. Goodbye.